Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. We live? We are with live. The value After Hours? It's Melt Up uh, Edition? 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast. 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. If you Melt want to watch it live, you've got to go to the Acquirers Podcast YouTube channel. Click the notifications. Just in time for the Melt Up Edition. What's happening, fellas? Inning two, the top of. Well, that's better than inning one, I guess. What was the bottom? A couple strikeouts. Wait until we get that uh, that stimulus deal. Uh, and we're really going to yeah. go bananas. The stimmy is going to be pretty dope. Do you reckon we're getting I a stimmy before the election? I w- if I was the Dems, there's just no way I'd be running stimmy before the election. Uh, well, I don't know, man. They, uh, we're about to get folks in the house. Mad at us. Um, <laughs> Pelosi actually, uh, she dropped her opening offer a long, long time ago. So now I don't know what you do. Uh, it's it's going to be great. Melt up stimmy. It's the best. Not that it makes it's any the difference kind of to the stimmy. fundamentals. It just, just kind of makes the, like throw the, throw the stone in the pond for a few days and. Watch the ripples. It changes the fundamentals some. It changes the consequences, right? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen the content. It shifts the fundamentals. That's correct. Between companies. It picks winners and losers is what it does. Our kids. I just want to pick the ones I own. Losers. (laughs) Losers, (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We're doing so much winning right now. We're taking all the winning (laughs) from the future and putting it into today. That's it. We'll see. Just make sure you win today. You don't want to be left out now. Jeez, don't be a value investor in this market. Melt up. All right. Let's get this thing going. Gentlemen, I am one of your hosts, Bill Brewster, along with my co-hosts, Jake Taylor and Toby Carlisle. Jake and I are just living in Toby's world, but we're we're fortunate to do it on a weekly basis. I am paying rent. (laughs) I'm just not getting paid. I don't have to pay rent. I'm not getting paid either. (laughs) I don't know. They say all these Google ads are sending you a bunch of money. Yeah, hundred dollars um, a month. <laughs> so much. By the way, buy some merch. I know I need to get more out there. Anyway, uh, Jake, what are you going to talk about today? I have a little piece I've prepared that I'm calling UFOs and Michael Mobison's new white paper. That's cool. I've been watching a few, been reading a little bit around UFOs. This this is gonna, we're going to go deep on UFO conspiracy theories this time. Around. Maybe, <laughs> Toby. What are you going to talk about today? Uh, other than UFOs, small. Yeah, well, this is this is a similar sort of thing. Uh, unidentified <laughs> small and micro objects are closer than they appear. I don't know. That's that's terrible. <laughs> small and micro, silly cheap. Small and micro values, silly, silly cheap. Something's got to give. It's not the size that matters. What, what are you doing? Bill? Uh, and I'm going to talk about a little bit of a. Uh, where we are in the market, I've been thinking about a lot of things, some of like thematic investing versus uh, fundamental and whatnot. And uh, I'll start that off right after this. <laughs> also, where's the shard? Not every day is a Chardonnay day, folks. Sometimes Diet Coke is my drink of choice. Um, With some rum. So I've been, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about uh, like some of – what I perceive to have worked recently, what what people missed, uh, and I and I guess that I think that we're at a point in time. Maybe Twitter is not the best place to have nuanced discussions. I will admit that, but it seems to me that some of the earlier thematic guys really. What does caught, that mean, by the way? What's thematic mean? Like, well, I mean, we're like, ha- like Zoom, we're having more I'm meetings. I'm gonna get there, bro. Zoom. No, okay, sorry, dude. Jeez, God, you're smart, Alec. Comments. Um, I wasn't smart, Alec. Actually, no, I know what it means. <laughs> no, so I think that when I think of it, I think of it closer to like this is a trend 
that is definitely coming and the rest of the world doesn't recognize how big this trend is going to be and therefore if i'm i'm earlier than many recognizing the potential like you know i'm going to end up doing very well over time it's it's very very similar to uh the rule breaker philosophy at least how i've sort of like men- mentally uh chewed on it the rule breaker this is the philosophy, motley fool one right yeah that's right and like I think that there's a lot of merit to that strategy. I think it's actually very smart. Um, I think this is a re- this market has particularly rewarded a strategy like that. But I think that, generally speaking, if you marry that strategy with small on a market cap basis, I can really get down with that. And it's somewhat VC in public markets. My aversion to that method right now is I think like everyone is looking for a platform. So I'm not sure how many unique insights like I'm actually going to have versus other people. And I think if you're applying VC from a high valuation, the outcomes are probably less good than maybe backward looking, uh, outcomes are. But, um, I think that people should listen to David Gardner and really chew on sort of that philosophy. He did a podcast with Consuelo Consuelo Mack. He did one with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I think it's something that's interesting uh, to contemplate. And, you know, it was, I didn't expect yesterday to sort of open up uh, YouTube to see Monish Pabrai, uh, you know, discussing the merits of compounders and focusing on business quality. And I think that like that is sort of an interesting thing to happen at this stage of where we are in the market. I don't even think he's wrong. Uh, like I, I don't want to come off in that way, but uh, it's just um, I, I think that what is going on right now is there's so much pressure to go into the compounders and there, and like I I've heard I have not watched the Ark Invest video, but I've heard that they're just like dunking on value guys, um, and I think that they have a point. Um, I also think value guys have a point, but it's gotten to the point where, sort of like the traditional value guys' voices are mocked, and that's how you know rotations into different asset classes outperform and others lose. Right? I think this is sort of what. Uh, I don't want to say like tops look like because I really do think we are about to approach the melt up. But um, I just I think this is a really interesting time. And I think there's a lot of merit in the VC strategy and looking for young companies that are doing things differently at small valuations is a very rational strategy to me. Can I and can as, I... as far wait, as far as Pabri goes, I just think it's really interesting because I never thought that I would hear the words come out of his mouth. So yesterday, I just didn't expect for him to go into Compound Town. But welcome. Welcome to the club. Twit's been saying this forever, man. Let, let, let's just leave Pabra to the side for a moment. We'll come back. I, I just want to ask a few things. So is, in this, what you're describing, is this some sort of top-down approach? I think it is, yeah. I think it's got to be. I, I think where it works is... Companies that have entered industries and have approached it in a different way. Um, so I don't know that it necessarily has to be top down, but for instance, like Netflix in the media industry is offensive to a lot of fundamental guys because they're looking at today's cash flows. There's a world where, like in 2026, Netflix has a ton of cash that it's printing. You got to believe some things, but I don't think that you're like, I don't think it's patently silly to believe those things. I think you can have a debate about whether or not the assumptions are realistic, but I, I think that, um, in the past I would have been served better by looking at these crazy high valuations and thinking like, what's the bet the market's actually making here rather than dismissing it. How much debt does Netflix have in that scenario where they're printing money? in 2026 it doesn't matter dude i mean if you if you get to jake it doesn't matter if you get to 70 billion dollars in revenue what do you think they're actually going to spend on content like 30 billion how much corporate overhead are they actually really going to have in a maintenance 
scenario, right? They're no longer investing it. The game today is use the accommodative capital markets to absolutely destroy all of the competition. If that works, dude, that's going to be worth a fuck ton. That's an actual technical amount that I did on the back of the envelope. And like then you then you end up with like an NVR auto zone in a could be a really interesting outcome, right? Once they start chewing themselves, it's a lot of cash flow. So everyone in your scenario died off though, right? Uh, yeah, you're going to have a lot of distribution die. Yes. I'm not sure that is a safe assumption. Well, that's fine. That's the debatable assumption. As is churn, as is ARPU. I mean, I get it. But I just think, look, it's it's easier at a $250 billion market cap to say this is crazy. If you were betting on it at $100 billion, it makes a lot more sense. That's where I think some of the VC mentality can make a lot, like really thinking that long out. But I think when you marry that with Buffett-style concentration, I think you can really get yourself into some problems, right? Because if you're, I mean, your your hit rate is probably going to be quite a bit lower. So you're playing with skew, I think, mm-hmm. more and letting the right, right tail run. So we're using this sort of top-down approach to identify... Uh, I like I like the idea of you know if you've got something out there that's got a very high valuation, then they turn around and use that valuation to soak up a whole lot of assets. Like that's a really smart move. Like we've all said previously on this, you know, if I was Tesla, what I'd do is I'd raise first, I'd go and raise a whole lot of cash. Second, I'd go and buy Fiat Chrysler or something like that. And then you've got all of your manufacturing, all that other stuff, just kind of distribution, all of that stuff sorted out. But this is a slightly different thing here. What we're talking about is like identifying a theme. And then trying to figure out how that theme is going to play out over a decade or something like that. And then we're going to invest on the basis of where we see that theme going. And we're going to kind of ignore the present fundamentals or the... the Present valuation. Fair enough. Present valuation. But valuations are still, you know, project out what you're currently seeing 10 years in the future. But you're saying something different from that. You're saying ignore the ignore the current financial statements of, of Netflix and think about it when it gets to a $70 billion run rate. Uh, they... if, if you believe it can. I mean, if you don't believe it can, then you're not. What right? is it, what is it now? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I just know that I had this conversation last night and we were talking about, like, I think that's what Rich Greenfield has baked into his uh, forecast in 2026. Now, he's the most bullish on the street. Right. So, and the street's fairly bullish. Is but that I'm just 200 saying, like, million subs to get there. No, sorry, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how he broke it down between ARPU and subs. Um, but I, I guess what my real point is without having the data in front of me to have the conversation is yes, I think that the game that people are somewhat either missing or choosing not to play, but I think choosing not to play is different than missing it, is like thinking far out about what a terminal value could be. And you know, being a terminal value investor, right? Rather than a cash flow investor. Historically, I have had a real aversion to that. And I'm not sure that I want to adopt that strategy because in my view, you really only have one way out. Uh, the nice thing about cash flow is it provides a couple outs if things go wrong. Um, but, you know, I look, I have gone at him about this before. I'm not trying to like go at my hero, but Buffett should have bought Costco a long time ago. Uh, and I don't think that that's like, and I think he still could. I, I'm not really sure why he doesn't. Um, I think part of it is his assessment of the probabilities is quite a bit different and the style that he likes to invest in is quite a bit different. And that's totally fine. He's like the goat. So that's awesome. But I do think that there are other strategies that can work for people. And I've been listening to David Gardner speak a little bit more. And I think I understand what he does a lot more than I used to. And I don't think it's crazy. I think in some ways what you're describing is the way that I understand. And Ian, I spoke to Ian yesterday. He might, I don't know if he's on the listening or not, but in some ways I think this is what the microcap guys are doing when they're, they're thinking like PE or VC, more, 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 more VC than PE, where they're looking at these companies. And, you know, they're sort of, they have an idea, they have the management team largely in place and they and you're just looking to see can these guys actually execute on this idea like can they get 
what they're proposing to do done and you judge it over the short period of time that you have to kind of look at them and then you think how big is the opportunity when they get there you know that's i think it's it's a very very difficult thing to do but it's not it's not unachievable there are lots of lots of guys out there doing it and doing it really well but i just think folks underestimate how hard that is well what i'm saying is we've been in a market where i think that method of thinking has been rewarded that's true Probably more so than it should have. Like, I think that there are more entities that have been rewarded with the story than warrant that rewarding, right? If that makes any sense. Uh, I also think that there are some that merit it. And one of the things that uh, Gardner says when he talks is he's like, look, my hit rate's probably going to be somewhere between 40 and 60%. I think he says 40%. But at the end of the day, if he bought Amazon at three bucks and he still owns it, like that can take, I mean, yeah. you can eliminate a lot of losses. So then the question becomes, do you actually have the stomach to never sell? And that's where I am not sure that people actually have the guts when like the, like Wells Fargo for a while was a never sell. Now it's a never own. If you own a stock, right? Like Amazon at one point was a never own too. So if you really think that you can never sell, then never sell. And David Gardner actually says like i don't i hold them until they are thrown out in the basket like i hold i hold them longer than anyone that's the only way to that's never sell easy. just like to eliminate your ability to sell you're just not that's allowed right. to sell stuff and if you're wrong and it just did it just becomes a smaller and smaller part of your portfolio and you just have to ignore it but that was you know that was one of the, the funny things about uh the story that fisher tells at the beginning of my version of uh, uncommon stocks sorry Common stocks, uncommon common profits. Common profits yeah. uh, is that when he found his dad's uh, uh, portfolio, he had like he had hundreds or maybe even a thousand little names in the portfolio because he bought. He just buys a lot of things, and then if they work, like then it just it kind of takes over the portfolio. If it doesn't work, then it kind of diminishes to zero. But at no, he, he's not selling. Is the point? You know what I mean? Yeah, you're coffee canning basically. So I, I guess what I, in the past I have dismissed a little bit because of the church that I pray to that approach. Um, but I think that there's a lot of merit in it. I just don't think that I would be comfortable allocating like 10% of my capital to a strategy like that because 10 bets doesn't seem like a sufficient number to catch a real wave. How did Fisher size? Does anybody know that? Anybody at home know how Fisher sized? Same with Lynch, right? Like, how did Lynch size? Because he had a lot of this stuff in his portfolio, right? And then let it grow. Part of Lynch's success, though, is investing from 77 to 90. Yeah. I mean, good returns through there, but also, you know, very fair tailwinds for value guys through there. You know, for everyone. Buffett's really run into a. Buffett's unlucky that he's. I mean, he's very lucky in the, the start of his career. Like, he, he didn't catch the Great Depression like Graham did, but then. He's come out just on the closure of Graham Newman, and then he's ridden it all the way until basically until 2005, when we've had the first real like value, you know, Armageddon type event. And there are lots in that 200 years of uh, two centuries data that Mikhail Samanov put together. But you can really see like Buffett is. I'm not trying to take anything away from Buffett, but it does help to have a value tailwind at your back instead of a value headwind and you know you can see him with a value headwind like he's a pretty ordinary investor with a value headwind oh how dare you go with the goat dang on a value pod hate mail yeah send it to toby (laughs) (laughs) but you know if as it's funny the older i get the more i want to be like buffett the more i think there's a lot of there's a lot of um and just to just just to disagree with you know not 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 because i disagree this is this is what i think the older I get, the less I want to take shots on things that are, you know, have the potential to go both ways. I think you, the, the older I get, the more I want to be, you know, I, I have this preference for quality in the stuff that I buy. Like I want it to be really, really cheap. And the only way you get something that's cheap enough is uh, to go sort of down into deep value world where it's not well picked over. But then once you're down there, you've got to find stuff that can survive. Like you need a cash-rich balance sheet. You need some cash flows. You need management that's buying back stock if it's cheap because that's that's the only signal that they can send. 
I think that you can get it, that that game is so much easier over the long run than than trying to pick themes. I guess I think something that Jake said a long time ago that or maybe not all that long ago, but uh, when we were offline that made a lot of sense is some of it too is like what, you know, there's, there's doing what's optimal and then there's doing what's optimal for your investors. And sometimes something that's optimal for your investors is actually suboptimal in theory. Uh, and the reason that I bring that up is like, I agree with you in my PA about value. Uh, like, but so I think, and I know that this is, people are going to dunk on me for it. But like, I actually think curate and Wells are not shit goes. And I actually think this skew in those, if you actually think long-term is pretty interesting. If I'm right on those businesses. Uh, now I don't know how you call up an investor that is investing with you and say, yes, I realize that zoom and Teladoc and all this is up three X, but boy, I really like Wells Fargo here. Like they yeah. got some change under the hood. That's the business. That's, but that's what you do. But it's super hard. So what what you're saying is you're like a, you're Peter Lynch in the streets, Warren Buffett in the sheets. No, that's not, I mean, I don't run, I don't run the, the uh, like spray and let it run portfolio. That's not what I do. But I I see the merit in it more than I once did. But but aren't you kind uh, of that's saying that's all that I'm saying? I, I'm just I'm teasing a little bit. But aren't you saying that you kind of more you're more reckless? You, you're what you're saying is you'd be more reckless with the public stuff and less reckless with your own stuff. No, I think that there are. Uh, I think that if Not you reckless look, is the wrong word. Sorry, I didn't mean reckless, but I meant more aggressive. There's exciting to own exciting, and then yeah. there's scary to own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know that I would be more or less aggressive with either. I would just hope that, uh, the investor base that I had understood what I was trying to do. I mean, I don't run outside capital, right? So I'm fortunate to not deal with this. Um, if I did, I think I need to have a long discussion about what the appropriate strategy would be for the assets in that portfolio. Because I, I don't think that a lot of people would want my portfolio, which is fine. That's why I think it's going to work. But but that's like, value, isn't it? Like you're always buying. Like the whole the reason I wrote Deep Value was because I want I just people would look at the portfolio and say you know and look fair enough it's been a it's been a shit run but people would look at that and like say this is just this is this is scary stuff to own. I'm like that's the point. Like you got to buy the scary stuff. But that's not been the case. I think the question I would ask myself is, is it, is it easier to see the future 10 years from now and skate to that puck? Or is it easier to control my emotions now and, and buy that scary portfolio? And neither one is going to be easy, but which one do I feel like I am particularly wired to handle? And yeah. for me personally, it's a little bit more of the stoic than the visionary. Yeah, well, that's fair. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, my personal market prediction, even though I think we're in like inning two of the melt up, is I think some things have already melted up. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch some of these shareholders that I perceive to have have already benefited from some of what's about to come. I think it's going to be interesting to see how long they own those businesses if the stocks go nowhere for a little bit. I just... It'll be interesting to watch. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the, all these stocks become trillion-dollar companies and it's fucking awesome. In which case, please, buy me some good champagne because you'll be super rich. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'll be sitting here drinking that cheap shard. <laughs> I've just yeah, had the fuse burned out of me. cost in that world? <laughs> I, I can't tell anymore. I've got no idea. I just, I, like, nothing would surprise me at this point. Up 50% or down 50% is just both uh, equally likely, in my opinion. I don't know. I was looking at my portfolio. I mean, obviously I have endowment bias on it, but like, I don't think there's that much stuff that's crazy. I think stuff's got a long way to run. But the, the, you know, the, the, the criticism would be if you're in, you know, the criticism would be don't hold a bank. Cause banks yeah. are. Well, I don't, by the way, I tax loss sold that bitch. <laughs> you, you, you punched out of Wells Fargo. Yeah. Well, for 30 days, you, you give me a scenario where people buy that in the next 30 days and I'll be pretty shocked. I'm not trying to pay taxes. All my idols avoid taxes. Fair enough. 
not advocating for it against it at all. I don't know. I, I, mean, just, I'm not, I don't want to get I'm in trouble. I don't know that not I'm investment out advice or tax like, advice. Yeah. Does well, the get... idea of not tax law selling is sort of silly, in my opinion, especially given the earnings call that they just dropped. I do not <laughs> think they're going to catch a bid in the next 30 days. And if I'm wrong on that, I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Get a little wash rule, get back in there. That's right. What is the wash 31 rule? Days. 31, 31. Okay. There's some other entities that could provide similar exposure. I do still like this Q and Wells. The only, the only, the only kind of wrinkle to that is in 2016, the market, the market started rocketing on the Thursday before the election. That's what I think a lot of folks think that it started on the Tuesday of you, the, the day. I'm of sorry, the, I started laughing because I think you think if the market rockets, Wells is going to rocket. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, run. It was more. Yeah, well, it, it was value more bit. than anything. I Wells don't know. isn't even value. Wells is unownable. That's value. That's deep value. <laughs> I know. The island of broken toys. Should we do JTs? It was not the earnings call they needed. At least not to get people hyped up. No. I think it was a good Ar- one, by the way. But you know. Just on arc very quickly. I'd be. I'd be. I'd be careful if I was. I mean, I. I just. It's just not my personality. I wouldn't be doing. A, I wouldn't do a victory lap uh, if I'd had a really good long run. Just, I, I'm too scared of the market gods, like just leaning down and smiting me for uh, my hubris. I see. Greg says I'm pushing Wells to dump it. Nah, that's not what happened. Pumping it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that video was pretty funny and like. Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was good, but. I agree. Like you are absolutely tempting the gods there. Like just tip your cap that you've had a good run and you know spectacular or, run. Like to to give it credit, the returns are redonkulous. It was like seventy five percent this year on like six or eight billion dollar AUM. Like incredible. Yeah, that is a hell of an a uh, hell of a year. And a yeah, very they long, went from long like run. one billion to ten billion in like a year. Yeah. And they've they've done like thirty six percent compound for the last five years or something. I think that was in that. I think that was the, in that article. That might those numbers might be wrong, but it was something like that. It was pretty. It's very impressive. As a quick tangent, back to Wells, real quick. One thing I think is funny is like everybody's like, oh, you got to think long. You got to think long. You got to think long. The whole reason I like Wells is like five years out from here, I think it's going to be in a lot better shape than it is today. And everybody's like, you're a fucking idiot for owning Wells now. And I'm like, I get what it looks like right now. You got to be a moron not to see what it looks like right now. But it's an entity that I don't think people are thinking long on. Or I'm just completely wrong, which is very possible because Buffett doesn't like it and he's smart in financials. He's not smart. He's a genius. Is it it not him not liking it or is him trying to send a little message about you know, can't can't do anything where there's any kind of ethical misbehavior, like maybe Salomon. I don't know. Kind of. Yeah, I don't know. Buff Dog, hit me up. I'll always take your call. Hit him in the DMs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Slide in, dude. I'm always on Twitter. Well, actually, less so now, but whatever. Sorry, JT. Let's let's get let's get the veggies in. All right. Well, so Malbosen has this white paper that came out. It's probably. A month ago now i don't know i was a little slow to getting to it finally but um it's called one job expectations and the role of intangible investments and it's it's uh it's it's uh, if you've read a few other books like uh you know capitalism without capital and the end of accounting they talked about this uh and like how intangibles have changed uh really like the accounting treatment um and what like how accurate is accounting compared to reality? And so, you know, these intangible investments are. What's the issue? Being... You're expen- You're expensing. You have to expense your your IP rather than capitalizing it. And, Correct. And so, depreciating it over time. Okay. Right. So it it ends up showing up. An investment in intangibles ends up showing up as an expense in your SGNA, and it doesn't show up on your balance sheet then. So. It, what, what really the problem is, is it makes historical comparisons very difficult. Yeah, and uh, and really, there's sort of like five things that might that uh, impact that are impacted. So earnings end up being understated when there's heavy intangible investment because all of the expense is showing up in year one. Uh, book value ends up being understated because it's not being capitalized on the balance sheet. The 
invested capital then ends up being understated, which means that return on invested capital is overstated. Yeah. Right. Like the, the actual like how you produce cash flow and and returns looks like it's on a smaller base. Yeah. Um, and then the important thing, too, is that that free cash flow doesn't end up changing. So it, it this is really an accounting thing and therefore a lot of academic impact on if you just go look at price to book or something. Right. Um, but it has made a pretty material impact. So like 1977 tangible investments were 1.7 times intangible. And then 40 years later, intangibles are 1.4 times as much as tangible. So it's, it's definitely shifted quite a bit. Like it's, it's material. Um, so the adjustment that they make, uh, that, that some have made to try to like, uh, clean this up a bit is to amortize R and D over a six year period. So we're just going to straight line depreciate R and D over six years rather than recognizing it upfront in SGNA and then taking, uh, some of the expenses that are involved there, especially in like software with sales, marketing, general, uh, and administrative and doing it over a two year period instead of just one year. So is a an accounting professor did a, a, a study of this and by reclassifying some of these intangibles uh, it ended up actually shifting 40 to 60 percent of stocks from a value or glamour bucket uh, so I mean you do kind of change the composition of you know what what value or glamour would look like if you change some of these things um, if so you're using price to book as your as your metric yeah, but even like PE can be changed too if that's if that's what you're using, right? Because earnings are clouded by too much expense being recognized in year one. Okay. Um, so th they do a little a theoretical example okay. of Microsoft and walk through that. And um, it ends up being that NOPAT, uh, which is net operating profit after taxes, ends up being bumped up by about 15%. Uh, and then the investment invested capital ends up actually going up by like 70%. So return on invested capital drops then in Microsoft from 52% down to 33%. But by the way, like 52% on that big of a capital base is freaking astounding, Ridiculous. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, another thing that they point out is that stock-based compensation, which we've talked about this already a little bit on the show, but it, it ends up being 15 to 20% of cash flow from operations yeah. and for the tech, the S and P 500 tech sector uh, and the smaller the business, the worse that that stock-based compensation impact is. So does that balance uh, so, it out? So just, just cause you said that there's a, you got to gross up their earnings a little bit for the SGNA, the impact of R and you know, SGNA. And then yeah. um, it, that's about 15%. And so then, instead of running the that that portion of compensation through the the income statement, they just run it outside that, and so that kind of balances it out roughly. Your fifteen percent comes. I, I don't know if that that fifteen percent that I cited earlier on NoPat was just Microsoft specific. So I'm not sure what the adjustment is across like you know the entire entire bundle there. Um, another. You guys getting a phone call. Bill is. I don't know what. Come on, man. Ah, oh, dude. You know what happened? Uh, I'm having technical difficulties. That's why we switched. It came back. My audio. Uh, All right. Here. We're just gonna keep going and pretending that you're on top of it. Um, one of the funny points in in the uh, white paper was that he's talking about how 1908, uh, the AT&T's uh, annual report is talking about network effects and how, you know, having multiple phone lines like creates a big difference in the value creation. So everyone who thinks that they're like onto some, you know, new idea with network effects and that you're a genius for discovering it, uh, it's been around a long time, let's just say. Well, 1904 was the last bottom of the big value drawdown. That was 59% bottom then. We're at 59% in May. I don't know exactly where we are now, but probably a fractionally worse. So network effects is the, uh, is the cause of value underperformance. That's what it is. It's come back Damn. again. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking about, uh, well, let's let's talk about the UFO part of it, and this ties back in a little bit to to Bill. Uh, and so 
this guy named Leon Festinger, I think that's how he says it. Um, he studied cult members and they had these, like people were waiting for this UFO to come. Right. And they, they had a date and the date ends up coming and then passing. And obviously they didn't get picked up by the UFO. Right. And taken anywhere. And he studied these people and, you know, interviewed a bunch of them. And this is actually where the work on cognitive dissonance came from. And, uh, he, you know, he found that people would claim that the event still happened, but that we just couldn't, we couldn't figure out, like, we just can't see that it happened, right? It becomes a non-falsifiable uh, hypothesis. Um, and what, what they say is that, that uh, oftentimes what happens is that there's a shift to more sophisticated and nebulous models when personally and ideologically committed, when someone who is personally and ideologically committed to a theoretical approach is clearly failing, right? So what happens is if whatever you're doing is is clearly failing, you look for, it becomes more sophisticated, mm -hmm. it becomes more nebulous, right? Like we start blaming intangibles, we start blaming right. information arbitrage, we start blaming the Fed, right? Like there's there's a million reasons why you start looking for why whatever it is isn't working anymore. That's, now, sorry, keep going. Go ahead. No, 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 no. That's okay. well. I, I was just gonna. It just reminded me of there's a study, and I, I don't know if I stuck it in one of the books or not, but it was. I read it. I think I have talked about it before, where they they get two people and they put them in front of a, a, a slides of cells, and they have a button where they can indicate whether they think the cell is healthy or unhealthy, or if it's it's got some pathology. And the, the wrinkle is that one person is getting real feedback and the other person is getting feedback that is based on the first person's feedback, but basically it's randomized. They don't know if they're getting, you know, their own determination of whether something is sick or pathological doesn't, doesn't yield them any useful information. Like the, the, the responses don't give them any useful information. So what ends up happening is the person who gets the concrete feedback, gets the accurate feedback, they start getting reasonably good, you know, with no kind of pre-training, they start getting reasonably good at telling the difference between sick cells and healthy cells. And they come up with these pretty simple concrete rules for what makes something sick and what makes something healthy. On the other hand, the person who gets the scrambled feedback, they start coming up with these increasingly elaborate theories for what is going on in the cells. And they get to the end and they've basically got this very elaborate uh, kind of nonsense theory for what is driving the the difference between healthy and sick cells. And it's just because their feedback is terrible. So if you get good concrete feedback, in, you get good concrete rules. If you get bad feedback, you get amorphous rules. Same, same phenomenon, I guess. Yeah, I love it. It makes perfect sense. Uh, <laughs> so maybe our the feedback mechanism has not been particularly good lately, and we've got to come up with a bunch of reasons why. Possible. And I get like, in, obviously the world has changed between tangible and intangible. Like that's undeniable. But you know, if you're, I guess part of the problem is some of the rigidness of you know academic versions and definitions of value. Right, which I think all three of us maybe don't particularly subscribe to. The the reason they make it rigid though is so it makes it testable. Like you have to be able to have a concrete, and then it, you have to make a lot of simplifying assumptions and so on. I I I think that I understand why they do what they do. I understand why there's criticism of what they do, but I I don't think I could come up with a better way of doing it. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about, and this is just sort of more like throwing it out there free form but do you think that there's anything to the idea of like a capital cycle theory but for software and that you know different time periods maybe will have like spending the money will produce more value versus other times or whether you're just sort of like plowing a bunch of money into an idea of like what a software can do um you know i, I think about i have this friend who was a very early programmer at, at at microsoft and he he said that like you have to realize that that software back then was so much better than any previous uh you know way of doing what you were doing so something like lotus one two three replacing or excel you know a little bit after that or a word processor or you know windows itself or you know uh 
like uh, Netscape Navigator, like all these things, because they were so new and they replaced something that was just so bad before, the value creation of them was monstrous, right? So you were early spender in that in that environment. But if you're kind of a late spender, maybe a capital cycle theory, uh, you know, diminishing returns to the job to be done by the spend of that software dollar, are we? Are we maybe thinking that these things are more valuable than they are because of that? And like they're plowing so much money in here, just like we would say, you know, if you were spending a ton of money in 2007 in oil, uh, you know, peak oil time to like bring it on, like, well, maybe there's not going to be as much yield for you later. Like we're going to have too much supply of that. I don't know. I mean, I was talking to somebody about Twilio today and he was saying that like it's fully embedded in in his code now, right? So you know, I don't know how long they can how many sort of uh tangential opportunities they can create, but I think that's what a lot of SaaS investors would argue is going on today is that they're laying the next iteration of the internet's infrastructure and if you have that opportunity, you go out and spend and you get it. And I, I think some of these businesses are going to be around for a really long time. And they probably are the next utility. I just don't know which ones. If I did, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> yes, you would. I certainly wouldn't be messing around with Wells Fargo. On a shitty value podcast. <laughs> no, I like the podcast. I have fun here. But I, I, I wouldn't be, like, fucking around in banks and stuff occasionally. I don't... Uh, yeah. It's, it's hard to know, right? Like... I think that there's reasonably good arguments for having a portfolio that looks something like the economy, right? Like if you've got a lot of, there's still a lot of money going through banks, you need a little bit of exposure to that. Yeah, I don't know if you do or not. I yeah. like it. You don't think, like, how, how I mean, I just find, I, how is software going to gonna get rid of a bank? I just, that's probably the, that's probably the, the comment that'll just get replayed to me for for the rest of my life. Well, yeah, I don't think I don't know that they're going to. I mean, that's a I'm not FOMOing. Shut up, Greg. Anyway, uh, I I don't think that software is going to uh, to eat a bank. I think I think a lot of fintech is going to help banks get more efficient. My entire thesis on big banks has always been that the small banks are going to get absolutely strangled by regulation and now low interest rates. Small banks, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I might be wrong. So I like the big banks in general because I don't know how if you're subscale, you're going to make it through this unless you're taking like shitty credit risk to earn a little bit higher spread. And that game doesn't end well. So one of the questions that I have is like a lot of these fintech startups seem to have partner banks. Those partner banks, I believe, tend to be located in rural areas because it's somewhat harder for them to attract assets anyway. So there's more incentive to like go out and partner with these fintech. What the hell are they doing with the deposits? Like, what are those banks doing? Are they just like some skeleton crew that's buying mortgage back paper and then they're like basically Charles Schwab? Like, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I'd like to know what those. Why are those banks making the deal that they're making? But like, this that I posted on Twitter. I was like, can we stop arguing that fintwit or uh, fintech is going to take uh, deposits because all of the big banks have grown deposits over the last six years, and that's when fintechs exploded. So like, I know it's a nice feeling to have that it's happening, but like the data actually doesn't support it. And if you think the FDIC is lying, then please show me that argument. So. Two, two two quick things. I just want to go back to uh, when you when you're talking before about the um, you know the the increasingly uh, amorphous rules for for determining. Just maybe think of that. You remember AQR in in the last uh, in in one of Cliff Asness's pieces. AQR talks about this little study. That, I don't know if it's his blog post or if it was the paper, but they talk about a little study that they did where they looked they took you assume that you had next year's forward earnings and then you make a valuation on that basis. And they just found that the, the t- 99 and 2000 had the lowest um, or had like an inverse relationship between fund- forward fundamentals. So the, the reason that they do it, they, they acknowledge that it is, it, it is cheating. The idea is that you've, you're, you're, you're feeding the system knowledge that you, you're, you're giving it an advantage so you can see how close the relationship is between the, the returns and 
the fundamental data. Like that's the, the whole point of doing it. So most of the time, if you have the forward earnings projection from a year, you do really well because you, you, you know what's winning and what's not, right? So that makes total sense. But in 99 and 2000, it didn't help at all. And in, in 2019 and 2020, it didn't help at all either. It was reversed. I just wonder if that's one of those, another example of that amorphous feedback making us all come up with crazy theories for, for what's going on. And I want to get some UFO talking. <laughs> so this is my, who wants, who wants to hear my crazy UFO theory? I'm in. Does it end in small value is undervalued? <laughs> it does now. So this is, this okay, is the way good. it goes. So uh, the, the, uh, we don't know if you we don't know if aliens are from another planet. We don't know if we've got this like we're seeing aliens from another planet. But we're definitely like this. They've released the footage online of that you know that uh, naval aviator seeing a uh, a UFO that then disappears out of his radar range really quickly, and they release that just to see how everybody reacts to it. And there's no great reaction from the public, so they go to the next stage which is you get the pilot interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast, which is kind of like a fringe podcast. And you can say after that comes out, like you, you just wait and see, like how do people react to that? If they react really positively to it, then you say, uh, then, you know, you don't disavow it. But if they come out and they, everybody's like starts panicking, then you say, well, this guy's disavowed and that's a fringe podcast, so don't worry about it. And then nobody reacted badly to that. So then they, they had this New York Times wrote up a piece about all of the... Um, discoveries that that people have made and uh, they got some guy from aerospace corporation to talk about they have some method for retrieving stuff from off-world craft that's the kind of words that they use all the pull quotes in that new york times article are really uh you know make you think that we've found aliens and we're we're pulling stuff out of the, the craft but if you actually then go in and read it there's there's nothing like that in there at all it's like a, it's a really anodyne kind of kind of article i just wonder if we're being like just softened up a little bit for when they come out and they say in 2020 at the end of 2020 when everybody's so exhausted from all the stuff that's going on yeah we found aliens and it's like the 10th most interesting thing that happens in 2020 and then we're everybody now we all know and we can all get on with our lives that's, and the that's aliens are shorting value those fucks <laughs> and they're buying growth when aliens come out that's, that's the signal value see, runs they could see 10 years into the future that's right, they're not, bro. They're, th they're thematic investors. They've already mined gold in space, so they already get the proposition. And gold's a donut, if that's the case. No doubt. That would suck. That would really suck for all the people that are, like, running to gold as a safe haven against a dollar. If, like, we just start mining a shit ton from space. That would be funny. I, I would feel bad for you for losing a lot, but I would laugh what, also. What works in that scenario? Yeah. The mining Nothing. company? <laughs> I don't know. But we don't really do anything with gold, so it doesn't really make much of an impact on the economy, right? It's just literally just the... some somebody's options package is what works in that scenario, and it's not going to be mine. So there's going to be some spec is going to absolutely crush it. You know the the interesting thing about Mavison's white paper that I don't think you touched on, and if you did, I didn't hear it, but was when he talked about uh, stock based comp, you should. I think he said this. If he didn't say it, I'll say it. Uh, you should assign some sort of uh, cost of capital and then embed that in the interest expense, right? So your your implied cost of capital is maybe lower than reality, right? Because of dilution. Now, I think some people just say, well, I'm just going to be diluted or whatever. But it, it, I think to be theoretically correct, the employees are lending equity to the company. So what is their cost of capital for that? I thought that was an interesting, like, yeah. I haven't gotten to that place on my own, but when I read it, I was like, "Oh, that's freaking obvious." But when you're when you're trading at you know fifty times gross profit, what's your cost of capital? It's all funny money anyway. Three it's questions, in, folks. We'll, we'll have a shot at them. The only thing I was going to say is that small value is really cheap, but I think that that's <laughs> uh, that's only a little bit more believable than we already know about aliens. So, so hit us up. I do think that small value is very cheap, though. I think that you don't need a multiple re-rating for value to work at the moment. It's for small value to work. That's the thing that I, I think it's now so squashed that 
there's enough yield and underlying growth that even if the multiples stay the same, it still outperforms. You know, this is assuming that multiples don't continue to get squashed, which is entirely possible. But at that point, I don't really care because the underlying growth should outperform. You say you don't care. <laughs> but, you know, I can hold now. So I'm not, I, I, I'm not, there's no urgency. I mean, I, I, I care, I guess, but it's, it's, it's that sort of, uh, you know, the, the Stoics, that Stoic line where he, I think it's Aurelius says, can you endure it? And if you can, then shut up, basically. That's where I'm at. I can endure it, so I'll just shut up. Here's a good question. Energy looks risky, but pipelines are historically cheap. Would this be an area you'd invest in, Bill? Yeah, if I hated myself, which I do, so I might. <laughs> Sometimes when I feel like life is going too well, I look at energy. And I think, like, maybe I just need to punch myself in the face. It's a rounding error in the S&P 500 now. It's crazy how small it's gotten. God, do you remember when Exxon was the biggest c company in the world? Banana it wasn't that thing. long ago. Right. I think it's in the last 10 years, wasn't it? I think so. I, I mean, you know, I don't know. I I think uh, I've mentioned before, I think Kyler Hassan, I mean, he's the guy that's written the most about it as a generalist. I think uh, Enterprise Products and Magellan Midstream are interesting. What I don't know it? enough about how you can get like really screwed within the corporate structure, but they're pipelines. Uh, and from what I understand, those assets are really freaking good. And I do not think hydrocarbons are going away anytime soon. So, uh, you know, do your own due diligence. And I might sell it for a tax loss, so don't cry if I do. Uh, I've got, uh, I don't own it right now. Sorry, JT. But I might buy it just to lose money just to sell it. Well, I would say that there's uh, this has kind of been true for a while already, right? So there's been a fair amount of value guy blood spilled on that sword. So who knows when, including it, when it will start, <laughs> when it will start uh, working again. But I agree. It's hard to imagine that the world is off of hydrocarbons as a thing. Uh, I don't care how un ESG uh, untouchable they become. When do we get, when do we get some it, fusion? When do we get cold fusion? How far away is that? It's always uh, 10 years away. I can't believe that there's no Tesla out there working on cold fusion. Like that's just, that's just an obvious, there's a, there's a billion dollar SPAC. business SPAC. It. Yeah. That like, you don't have to actually do it. Like that's the, that's the thing that you just have to say you're working on it. The golden age of selling dreams. The Edison that's on our time. Pre-revenue. Pre-revenue. Pre pre, we're pre-technology. That's what we're working on. <laughs> We're, cold fusion. We're pre-reality. <laughs> That's what Nikola was. They were pre-technology. Pre we're pre-all the hard work of actually making this. Tre Trevor Milton's got a $35 million ranch in uh, in Utah. Like, that's real. Yeah. God damn it. So I'm just announcing oh. right now that I have a, I've got a, uh, a startup. It's going to be Cold Fusion. I haven't thought of a name yet, but it's going to be, if Nikola Tesla has a middle name, that's what it's going to be called. Is our ticker going to be FU? <laughs> the ticker is going to be something T-S-L-A-N-K-L-A something something L-A. I haven't thought. Oh, that, that's as, yeah, that's right. Fula. No, not, yet, not yet. No, I don't know. I, I Yes, I think that the, the pipelines, I think Buffett's deal on the pipelines probably ends up very good. Um, look, so those assets you need, like the, like the Magellan assets, from my understanding, if you are going to get gasoline from a refinery to the end point of a gas station, you need the assets. So I think you got to ask yourself, like, are those the assets I want to own? And if the answer to that is yes, it's probably an entity worth doing some due diligence on. I think those are interesting assets. I don't own it, but I can understand why people like it. it I don't think cars are going away tomorrow. Toll booth experience. And I was just reading, uh, have you guys read that, uh, it's called cap allocation, and it's about the Berkshire's financials, basically, from 1955 to 1985, something like that. No, I haven't seen that now, one. If you're a big Berkshire nerd, like it's pretty fun to read, to just go through all the different numbers, see what Buffett was looking at kind of in real time. Um, but one of the, the early, early deals that was very small and kind of wasn't – I haven't really heard it talked about much was this company uh, – that literally owned a toll booth, like they owned a, a tunnel in Detroit and, uh, or actually it was a bridge in Detroit. Um, 
called the Ambassador Bridge, I think. Um, and it, it uh, <laughs> I mean, he owned a literal toy booth at one point uh, that they, they bought. The buff dog. He's the man. He's good. Toby's wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's messed up that you don't like Buffett, man. <laughs> messed up. <sighs> okay, I got a good question for you. How do you think value performs in inflation, stagflation environment? This this part I can ask. The second part I don't know the answer to. Created by Banking for All Act. I don't I don't know that act. Sorry. Do you guys know Banking for All? No, let's, I haven't read it. I I pulled it up real quick, but I don't I don't know what the hell it does. And I only saw like six paragraphs, which is not enough for any act to actually be. So I need to read it. How do you think value performs in an inflation stagflation environment? Then don't worry about the second part. I don't know. How does any? I mean, I have no idea. We kind of talked about this a few weeks ago. It made me. I I think it's. I think that the, there's this sort of narrative at the moment that what value needs is inflation. But I don't know that that necessarily helps um, be, just because the nature of it at the moment seems to be this. Well, it's not always this, this, the case, but it's there's a little bit of heavy industry in there at the moment. And there's that great, there's some Buffett commentary on it, including his, uh, his paper, How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor, where he talks about reinvesting in heavy industry. It makes it hard. Like, and I, I sometimes wonder if the reason that the market looks the way it does at the moment is because everybody is actually anticipating inflation or if the, the market is already positioning itself for inflation that we uh, aren't necessarily measuring. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, the, the nice thing about software, if you're a software investor, is I'd argue a lot of the inflation is already in it, right? Because your inflation is going to come through the cost structure, and it's not as if engineers are not in high demand right now. So I don't know that you have to be quite as concerned about inflation in that way as you do like if your machines are, heavy, are more expensive to replace. You know what I mean? Oh, there's a lot of scenarios that I can argue that I'm like, oh, software wins. It's just not the valuations that I think make much sense at the moment. But I've been wrong and will continue to be probably. How about you, JT? You want to you wanna get some more uh, Austrian hate mail? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, there, there are so many different things you can pile up on either side of the scale that I don't know which weight is heavier um, so which way it tips? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, software is, could be, if it has pricing power, especially could, uh, certainly see pretty dramatic earnings in, in an inflationary world potentially. Um, but you could tell me that like 3d printing becomes this amazing thing and that the cost of actually like producing an atom where you want it in the yeah. structure that you want it completely changes the cost structure of that and now all of a sudden maybe heavy industry is not as disadvantaged um software eats that part of the world okay well that's i don't know now um well dude and to your all point, of these things like, are very hard to i do know if i think if interest rates go up quite a bit then the terminal value all the reasons that terminal values have been inflated work backwards somewhat and cash today will be more valuable and cash flow in a more more temporally close to today will be uh discounted less um than the cash that's even further out and therefore that sort of is a as a value versus glamour uh argument at the moment and don't except okay. maybe you could argue that there's less in, like there's less potential dollars to enter the market if there's a higher opportunity cost of capital, right? You're, the certainty of your position may actually increase. But I don't disagree with you. I'm just sort of like mentally masturbating here. Plus, um, plus you've got uh, the cold fusion generators everywhere making energy abundant and free, essentially. Too so cheap to meter. Too oh, cheap to what meter. I, what I wanted to say before we derail... The, I watched the Zoom Investor Day. That was pretty interesting. So, like, you know, like they have their. I think when you when you think about what people may be seeing, as far as like Zoom as a platform, and then the phone and how it, it like Zoom phone, how it can displace like all the telephones and everything that's in the enterprise right now. Um, it got me thinking to one of the discussions that we have a lot. Like, 
it is obvious to me how that product really hurts the incumbent phone provider to that enterprise and enterprises in general, right? Like the people that provide the hardware and all of that excess cost that you can suck out of the system. It is much harder for me to understand why Zoom is the beneficiary of that over the amount of years that I think you have to have that view right now. And like, to me, part of what's awesome about Zoom is how easy it is to use. If software is that easy to use, it seems easy to switch. Um, and maybe that's like stupidity in my mind, but I just worry, like, how do they not get outflanked by somebody else with this valuation? And so that's where I think, you know, our conversations end up in just kind of getting to this point. And we say, Folks, stocks up, melt up. That's, uh, that's, that's all we got time for this week. So in, in closing, we're all long Zoom. <laughs> that's not true. No, we're not, we're not. You can't say that. Also, nothing we say is investment advice. And don't get your panties in a bunch if I sell something. See you next week, amigos. That was fun. Thank you. Cause, 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 no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.